0: Hebrews 13.2 Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. It's great to see everyone. I want to say congratulations to Russell and to Charlotte. Seventy years, that's quite the feat. Congratulations. If you would, travel back with me in time to England in the... Middle Ages. Let's go back to 600 AD. Now, in England, there were certain laws that had been written concerning sanctuaries, or we can call them. Excuse me, one second. We can call them cathedrals. And there were certain laws concerning these. You see, a criminal could go to a cathedral and claim sanctuary. And what that meant was that they they were no longer susceptible to being arrested and for 40 days they they could submit themselves to the authority of the church and either confess their sins and be exiled or eventually surrender themselves to the law. And so the idea was that this, this place was a sanctuary for the criminals but it wasn't just a sanctuary for criminals. They were built on top... High ground, they were built, as you can see, with tall steeples, so, and most of the time at the center of town, so that they were visible, so that traveler and criminal and regular townsfolk alike could all look to this building as a sanctuary, as a place of refuge. Now, I think we understand that there is no true power in the building itself. But I do want to talk about this idea. For a moment of the church being a place of refuge. A sanctuary, if you would. And when I talk about the church, I don't mean brick and mortar. I mean the people, as described in the, New, in the New Testament. The church in the first century met in people's homes. Church buildings didn't enter the picture until many, many years later. And yet, in the first century, I believe, at least most churches, when they were properly living out their faith, they were a haven of rest for the downtrodden, for the outcasts. They were a place of sanctuary. And I'd like to examine that idea and ask ourselves the question, are we a place of sanctuary for the world? Now, in order to ask this question, I'd like to introduce you to a man named Matthew. Matthew was a guy like any other guy Average drove, you might say, but an opportunity had fallen in his lap. The opportunity to take on a job which would provide him with lots of money. Now this job, it wasn't one of those you know minimum wage hourly jobs, it was a career. and it would furnish you with all the money you would need to, to have whatever house, whatever transportation, whatever furnishings, whatever riches you so desired. But there was a catch. If you take this job, you better like the money. In other words, the money better be important to you because along the way, you're probably going to lose your friends. You're probably going to be treated poorly on the street when someone passes you by. They're going to pretend they don't even know you. That's the price you better be willing to pay for all of these riches. Why? Because these very riches, this very wealth, And the very money that you earn will have come directly from the pockets of your neighbors. Now, I don't know who would be willing to make such a sacrifice, but I would venture to say there are many people out there who would be willing to make such a sacrifice socially so that they could have wealth. And for whatever reason, Matthew decided he was willing. He was willing to make such a sacrifice, and so that's what he did. He took the job, and he became a tax collector in first century Palestine. Now, I think we all understand why a tax collector would be disliked, okay? Even in our own culture, who here likes to get a call from the IRS, right? Not many of us. I kind of feel bad for tax collectors in that sense, especially tax collectors today. Because no one wants to talk to, they're like a punter in a football game. No one wants to see the punter on the field. You know, and any time a punter does a good, good job, there's, it's still disappointing. Any football fans? Apparently not. Okay? But that's what a tax collector is. My grandmother was a, uh, she worked for the IRS. She never told me. <laughs> I found out at her funeral. And so it must, it must have been, sorry, that sounded way more harsh than I meant it to. But it's the truth. I found out later she was a tax collector for the IRS. And I wondered why she never told me. I think it's because perhaps there's this this dislike that people have, right? But even even now that's true. But way back then in the first century, it was even worse. Because tax collectors in, in Palestine, they weren't just taking money for the government. They were taking money for the Roman government. And so if you were a Jew and you worked as a tax collector, you were considered a traitor to your own people. You were aiding and abetting these occupiers. But not only that, tax collectors were considered crooked. Because the, the business really, it was, a, it was the dream job for a greedy person. Because the more crooked you were, the more money you could earn. And so many tax collectors were thieves. They would demand more money from their, constituent, from, from their constituents They would demand more than the Roman government asked of them, and then they'd pocket the leftovers. And so, thus, many people hated tax collectors. Called them tax farmers. They were pariahs. They were people not to be associated with. And so I wonder, when we look at Matthew, the tax gatherer, I wonder what led him into this situation at all. Did he tell himself, you know what? I'm going to take this job but I'm not going to be one of the corrupt. Maybe it's like like a lot of us when we when we start you know splashing in the shallow end of sin, we think, "Oh, it's not going to hurt me. It's not going to hurt me" until eventually we we become enveloped by it. We become corrupt over time. I think that's very it's very possible that that's what happened to Matthew. He started off saying, "I'm not going to be corrupt," but then over time, he became the very thing he said he wouldn't become. And who can blame him, right? If everyone assumes you're a thief, if everyone if everyone treats you like a thief, then you might as well become a thief. And I wonder if he felt regret. I wonder if there was a moment when he thought, oh, if only I could go back. And yet, there's a point when you've gone too far, isn't there? There's a point when you've gone too far and you can't come back. When you've stolen the bread out of a child's mouth, their parents don't tend to forget that, do they? So the only people he's able to associate with are people like him. And the only way to be a part of that club, the only way to be a part of this social club, is to sell your soul to the idol of money and wealth and become a thief like all of them. Now, we don't know all the details with Matthew. Most of what I said is speculation, but I do believe it's fair speculation given the text we're going to be looking at. And when we meet Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, we find him sitting at his booth, his tax collector's booth at Capernaum. And I want us to understand, he's down at this booth by the Sea of Galilee. This is not a place that people visited by choice. And so when Matthew heard that the traveling teacher, Jesus, was coming into town, I, I can't imagine, or I don't think that Matthew imagined for a second that Jesus would pay his booth a visit. And if he did, I don't think he thought Jesus would have anything nice to say to him. Right? He's a religious leader. He's a rabbi. What, he, he's met people like that before, and all they've done is stuck their nose up at him. They've, they've looked down on him. They thought of him as a traitor, as a sinner, as part of the, as a pariah, as one to be shoved to the side, right? He had gone through life with people who were not happy to see him, but simply put up with his presence. And he had met religious leaders before, and so when he hears Jesus is coming into town, he probably thought Jesus will treat me just like every other religious leader, probably. And yet I. I know that what he heard about Jesus must have been different. Right? Here's this guy who has no money, no wealth. He travels around and he heals people for free. He doesn't take any money from them. And instead of buying possessions to to fill his own emptiness, this guy empties himself for others. And so Jesus is different. I don't know what he thought. If there was any hope at all in him, but we see him in Matthew chapter 9 sitting in his tax collector's booth. And here comes the crowd. And at the center of the crowd, there he is. This teacher he's heard so much about. And Jesus is making eye contact with the people in the crowd. He's, he's talking with them. He's changing them. And then he makes eye contact with Matthew. He zones in, you know. I imagine the scene that he's in the crowd and Matthew thinks he's like a fly on the wall watching and then suddenly Jesus' eyes just zoom in right on Matthew. And there he is and Jesus says to him, "Follow me." Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth and he said to him, "Follow me." And he got up and followed him. I love how simply that's put. I think Matthew's been waiting for something like this. I think Matthew's been waiting for an opportunity like this to come around. But he never thought it would come in the form that it did. And Jesus, in front of all this crowd, in front of everyone, makes a tax collector one of his twelve. One of his apostles. One of those who would be a part of his inner circle. Think about that. Now, I, I know I've talked about this before, that the twelve themselves, they were not, let's say, great examples of upstanding citizens that, that, that we oftentimes think of them and nowadays. right? One was a zealot. In other words, he was kind of a rebel against the Romans. Right? And now here we have Matthew, who's a tax collector, considered by society, by culture, to be a pariah, to be a sinner. And yet here he is among the inner circle of Christ's followers. And that is because with Jesus, there is sanctuary. With Jesus, there is a haven of rest. With Jesus, we can leave our past behind, We can enter into his inner circle, into his family of brothers and sisters. And we can change. We can leave our past behind. And it doesn't matter what we were before. It doesn't matter what sins we had committed. It doesn't matter the way our society views us. Because Christ is a sanctuary for the downtrodden and for the outcasts. Jesus knew Matthew. He knew every sin he'd committed. knew every thought he'd had. He knew every person he might have cheated. In the same way, Jesus knows you. He knows all of us. He knows every thought you've had, every website you've visited, every bad word you've spoken. Jesus also knows your regret. He heard you when you called out to Him. And he offers a place of sanctuary. And he says the same thing he said to Matthew. He says it to you. Follow me. Because with Jesus, there is sanctuary for all criminals and outcasts, for all those who feel downtrodden, for all those who are slaves of sin. With Christ, there is sanctuary. But not only is there sanctuary with Christ, there's also sanctuary with his followers. Let's go ahead and read the next verse. Verse 10. It says, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, most believe that they are reclining at Matthew's house. That After Matthew follows him, he takes Jesus and the twelve to his house. Now, just think about that for a moment. At least Peter, Andrew, James, and John were from this general area of Capernaum. Peter was married to a woman from Capernaum and they were all in Galilee and anyone who was in this general area they had to go to Capernaum to pay taxes. Here's my point. Peter, Andrew, James and John knew who Matthew was. They knew him as the tax gatherer. And so I I have to imagine when Jesus said, "Hey, we're going to Matthew's house." Peter must have said, "Wait, you mean Matthew Levi, the tax farmer?" Can you imagine how tempted they must have been as they walked into the house to look around at all the riches and say, hmm, so this is what my money bought. And it gets even worse, right? They sit down or they recline at the table and not only are they eating with Matthew, one tax farmer, but Matthew has, in, has invited all of his friends. And they're all tax farmers. And so here are these these 12 apostles sitting down at a meal with their rabbi and also sitting down with all these traitors, these sinners, these thieves, these people who've cheated them, and how tempted must they have been to think, ugh, I'm eating a meal that I paid for. And yet when you read, you see no such thing. It seems to me that there was a lot of grace in the room that day. Not only from Christ, but from his followers. They welcomed Matthew in, into that group. And they eat with him. They share a meal with him. Because this this has to be the truth of any of Christ's followers. With Christ there is sanctuary. With Christ's followers, there is also sanctuary. With Christ's followers, there must be a haven of rest. Those who are downtrodden and outcast must feel that they have a, someone that they can go to. They must feel that a Christian is one who they can, they can talk to. With Christ's followers, they're sanctuary. However, with the Pharisees, there's only judgment. We'll look at the next couple of verses here. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners." They say, wait, what is Jesus doing? Why would he associate with such people? That is not what religious leaders do. And I'm sure Matthew thought the same thing, right? When, when Jesus was passing through town, he thought to himself, yeah, religious leaders just don't associate with tax collectors. And the Pharisees all have the same mindset. They say, Jesus, why would you be eating... Oh, well, they don't even go to Jesus, they go to his followers, but Jesus sees through it, of course. They say, why are you eating with such sinners... Because all they can do is judge. They thought they were living by God's standards. They thought they were the elite of the day. They thought that they were ritually pure. And Jesus responds to them, cutting through to the heart of the argument. He says two statements that I find very uh, beautiful. The first statement is he sa- that he says is, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. What a beautiful statement. What an amazing, wonderful statement for all of us. We can get caught up in this mindset that church, that the church, is for people who have their lives put together. If you're a visitor here, let me let you, clue you in on a secret. None of us have our lives all that put together. Only Christ can take our broken life and make it into anything worthwhile. And yet there's this mindset, this pervasive mindset, where the the church, maybe you've heard the statement, the church should be a hospital for sinners rather than a museum for saints. There is a mindset that is pervasive where some people don't even want to set foot within a church building because they feel like they don't belong because their life is broken. Because they've sinned. And in some cases, people feel that way, not only because of because it's some kind of pervasive mindset out there in the ether, but because a self professed Christian actually treated them that way. Because the truth is there are Pharisees among us even today. Pharisees who look down with harsh and swift judgments. Who turn their noses up at such outcasts, at such sinners. And so they feel, because they've been told, that they don't belong. That is not the church as is described in the New Testament. The New Testament church is a sanctuary and a haven for the sinners of the world. And so Christ tells them, He says, I didn't come to this earth to pat the righteous people on the back. I came to save sinners, which would include all of us. The second statement he makes in verse 13 is a quote from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I believe what he's doing here is that he's challenging the Pharisees' instinct. Their instinct was to be ritually pure, right? And really to rely on their ritual pureness, right? They followed. Every law they could think of, you know, at least these the laws that were very physical in nature. They followed all of these laws, and they thought, "Okay, I'm a righteous person because I've done these things." And Jesus, he's pointing out that even though they they've done these things, even though they've considered themselves ritually pure, they've completely neglected what it is to live out the character of God, because they're neglecting. One of the most important commandments. The law of Moses had many ordinances. But what two ordinances did Christ say was most important? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And when you follow, follow, you you might follow all the laws of the scripture, but if you don't follow that law, then you're breaking the whole law. This is the exact point that James makes in the book of James chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there. James chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. James says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. You have, not made, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? and then verse 8, which I believe is a key verse in the entire book of James. He says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. James says, you might be able to follow every other law. But if you're looking down on other people, you're breaking the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And if you've broken one law, you've broken all of them. So the Pharisees were not following the law at all. And neither are we. If we are looking down, if we are making swift judgments if we're making assumptions if we are turning up our noses at the downtrodden at the outcast at, at and people that we shove into these categories that we dare not associate with that's the pharisaical mindset the pharisaical lens let me ask you a question and this will be the question i keep coming back to throughout the rest of the sermon through what lens Do you view people? I used to be into making movies. I still love movies, but uh, I used to make films like in high school and college. And uh, they have different cameras, right, for different types of uh, scenarios. They also have different lenses, right? You put different lenses on different cameras for different purposes and for different types of scenes, right? There's the wide-angle lens. There's the fisheye lens, and then there's, you know, the telephoto lens. There's all these types of lenses, right, that go onto the camera. You use a wide-angle lens if you want a small, if you want a scene to feel vast, right? You can make a small room feel big with a wide-angle lens. Well, in the same way, I believe each and every one of us, that includes you, by the way, I think each and every one of us view the world through a somewhat distorted lens. Each lens, wide-angle lens, whatever type of lens it is, it distorts the image to a particular degree. And I think the same is true for every single one of us. Now, some people view things through an even more distorted lens than others. Sure, certainly. But I don't think any of us have the ability to take in all information objectively without our own personal biases, without our own personal feelings, getting in the way. And, and this is just how humanity works. We're all flawed, right? Communication. There's a lot of communication breakdown in, in the church even, but uh, in any society, right? Humans can have a hard time communicating sometimes. I think it's because we view things through different lenses where somebody says one thing and the other person hears something completely different. So my point is we all view things through a lens of some kind that distorts the image. So let me go back to that question. Through what lens do you view people? You view, it through, view people through the Pharisaical lens, where everyone's broken down into two categories. There's the saints, and then there's the sinners. right? There are the righteous, and then there is the, uh, the, the riffraff, the unrighteous. And the righteous are to be commended and honored and these sinners are to be condemned swiftly and looked down upon and not associated with. That's the Pharisaical lens. The lens that many of the Pharisees had, and Jesus points, points it out to them. Or perhaps you view things through the lens as described in here in the book of James. Right? In the book of James, the lens is somewhat different, right? There's this idea that there are some people. It's still this idea that there are some people you want to associate with and some people you don't, right? And it's the rich person who you, who you want to be a part of your church gathering. You know, they can give more money in the you know in the contribution. They can uh, you know having a rich friend is a is a good thing. So, the rich guy comes into our small group. We got to do everything we can to make sure they have a good time. But if the poor person comes in, Eh, you know, it doesn't really matter if they're here or not at all. That's kind of what he's describing here in this house-church scenario, right? And so we, it is possible for us to view things through such a lens. But what is the lens through which we're supposed to look? How are we supposed to view people the way Jesus viewed people? Not breaking people down into two categories, the righteous and the unrighteous. The truth is, we're all unrighteous. And Jesus sees all the unrighteous not as people to be swiftly condemned, but as people to be saved. Now, there's a slight difference there because it is true that once you've sinned, you deserve condemnation. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So there is this righteous, righteous, you know, anger that is that is possible for for us to have. There's a righteous condemnation of of sin that we should have, but the way in which we view people, the lens through which we view people, should always be through the lens of people who need rescuing, not people who need condemnation. That's how Jesus viewed people. That's how Jesus viewed. Matthew. Jesus tells the Pharisees, and after he's made these two grand statements, he tells them, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. And I think that's a direct reference to Matthew. Because just a couple verses earlier, he called Matthew to follow him. Saying, Look at, so Matthew becomes this great example. Let's, let's look at him for a moment. Just imagine for a moment what assumptions people probably made about Matthew as Jesus was walking by. The people in the crowd, they may have glanced over, they may have seen the tax collector, Matthew. They probably made several assumptions about him. And the pharisaical lens, the pharisaical mindset, doesn't allow for the possibility of people to change. Think about that. They're a sinner. They're always a sinner. Otherwise, you know, you'd try to change them, right? You'd try to help them. But the pharisaical mindset says, oh, they are a sinner and they'll always be a sinner. There's no possibility for growth. There's no possibility for for change or salvation. And so I'm sure there were many people in the crowd who thought, oh, once a tax collector, once a thief, always a thief. But Jesus views people not only as sinners in need of salvation, but as people with great potential. What great potential did Matthew have? Well, here's one thing we're reading from a book that he wrote through the power of the Holy Spirit. He wrote an account of Christ's time in this earth, Christ's ministry on this earth. An account which has been instrumental in the salvation of countless souls. If Jesus had seen Matthew and thought, Oh, he's a sinner, he'll always be a sinner. you see how making such a judgment call can almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Let's say you, let's give you a scenario. Let's say you know someone who is an extreme sinner. You, some, you for whatever reason, have a relationship with them, but you assume that they'll never change. Therefore, you never approach them with the powerful message of Christ you assume that they wouldn't listen to it anyway so why go why, why why make the risk right why take the risk and so they don't change you are in essence putting a limit or trying to put a limit on what god can accomplish if you believe in god's power to save you better believe in god's power to change god's power to change your life right he changed you didn't he Perhaps he drew you out of the pharisaical mindset. Perhaps that's one way you've changed. Perhaps Christ took that lens off of your eyes and gave you a new one a new set of glasses. What's the point? I think the point is clear, but I want to make sure and ask that question again. What what lens do you view people through? Do you see people as great potential? Do you see people as, as, as those in need of salvation, as those in need of, of, of healing? Or do you see them as pariahs that should be ostracized, that you should shove off into another category and never associate with, or that, they should, uh, that you should make assumptions about them or have swift judgment on them? How do you react when somebody walks into our assembly Dressed in a manner that just doesn't work. Okay? And, and by the way, everybody has different opinions on this, so just go ahead and fill it in with whatever is the worst case scenario in your own mind. Okay? Maybe they're covered in tattoos and piercings and wearing fish, you know, whatever it is. Maybe they're homeless or they're poor and wearing shabby clothing. Do you avoid them? Are they the type of people you are? Instantly inviting the small group. Maybe it's people you associate with in your day-to-day life, in your career, in your job. And maybe it's not what they wear or what they look like. Maybe it's something. Maybe it's the job they hold. Maybe it's the particular party that they vote for. Maybe it's something, uh, some belief that they profess. You know, maybe they're an atheist. Maybe they pray to Mary. Maybe they wear a burqa. Maybe they, they attend rallies that promote abortion. Again, I'm, I, we can have a righteous anger for sin. But it is not the righteous who need a doctor. or It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And Jesus was a place of sanctuary for even prostitutes, for even those we would put in the extreme categories of sin, they knew that they could go to Jesus. Do the same types of people know that they can come to you? That's the question. My hope and my prayer is that all of us will become a sanctuary to the lost. Not not a beacon of condemnation. The lesson is yours. I hope that it has touched you in some way. God's Word has such power. If you're here this morning and you feel maybe a little bit like Matthew, where you've gone too far into sin, there's no escape, there's no way to get out of it, well, I hope that you can see from Matthew's account that's simply not true that Christ offers a beacon of rest. And in Matthew's very account, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus offers a haven of rest. And if you need to come to Him, please come, as together we stand and sing.